The reading this morning is from 2 Corinthians 8, verses 1 to 15. And now, brothers, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. Out of the most severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able, and even beyond their ability, entirely on their own. They urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the saints, and they did not do as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then to us in keeping with God's will. So we urged Titus, since he had earlier made a beginning, to bring also to completion this act of grace on your part. But just as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness, and in your love for us, see that you also excel in this grace of giving. I am not commanding you, but I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. And here is my advice about what is best for you in this matter. Last year, you were the first not only to give, but also to have the desire to do so. Now finish the work, so that your eager willingness to do it may be matched by your completion of it, according to your means. For if the willingness is there, the gift of it is acceptable according to what one has, not according to what he does not have. Our desire is not that others might be relieved while you are hard-pressed, but that there might be equality. At the present time, your plenty will supply what they need, so that in turn, their plenty will supply what you need. Then there will be equality. As it is written... He who gathered much did not have too much, and he who gathered little did not have too little. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Sherilyn. And um, I've been feeling slightly guilty about that interview because I didn't uh, credit my mum and dad enough about how I became a Christian, and there's no doubt for me that uh, the most important reason, humanly speaking, I became a Christian was because of the witness and prayer of my parents. And um, and just an encouragement to any parents that are out there who've got children of an age where they're, they're sad because they're not yet followers of the Lord, uh, I think that's what I put my parents through for, for a good number of years. And um, I think that what they did, it wasn't because they were, um, I didn't become a Christian because of their them doing great family devotion times or uh, specific evangelism courses with us or anything like that, but because of their integrity and commitment to the Lord in a non-hypocritical way. And um, I'm enormously thankful for that. And so never give up that you've been able to set a good example to your children and um, uh, keep praying for them. Uh, I was also going to say, too, it's a nice time just to be able to say thanks to Hannah and her team for putting on a great camp, and um, we owe you guys a lot. You do it every time, but uh, thank you very much. I've only got one complaint. Yeah, we should clap, then. Now I feel bad that I said I've only got one complaint. I should pull back. It's not a complaint to you, Hannah. It's more to Miriam. Uh, I'm just wondering whether my formal desire to have a zero nominated 
for the person who forged my bio. And has that been done? <laughs> has don't worry, Miriam. You look you look blank, but I know what I mean. I thought I publicly asked for. <laughs> what was that? Oh, she looks guilty. Yeah, that could be true. Uh, I've got an apology to make. Was it you, Miriam? Oh, I don't know what to do now. Um, <laughs> I'll move on. A, a, an apology for me. I, I, my voice is odd today. I, I'm sorry I've woken up like that, and I'm not sure what it is. This is also, uh, I was saying this to the people that were here yesterday, this is part three of a four-parter. And, but we're doing it on the time we would normally gather for church, and this is the least like a sermon of any of them, because we're going to be talking about Anglican, Anglicanism a lot. So forgive me for that. Uh, but it's the spiritual principle, and we finish next week at church with back to the gospel, back to evangelism, back to people needing to know Jesus. So there's a bit of a, a kind of change of feel here, but there are spiritual principles going on behind all of this. So I'm still very hopeful, hopeful that it will be helpful. Uh, now, let me pray and then we'll, um, we'll get into things. Father, we thank you for uh, what a wonderful campsite. We thank you for Hannah and her team who've organised such a wonderful camp so that we can just relax and enjoy you and enjoy one another, uh, enjoy your creation and enjoy deepening our love for you. And this morning I pray that as we think about what could be an odd topic really to spend some time during a gathering of your people to think about, I pray that you would use it to um, help us think about how we serve others how we can be a blessing to others, because you have been such a blessing to us. Uh, Father, please be with us as we reflect on these things, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. If you haven't been with us for the other talks in this series, then please allow me just to add to Luke's recap at the beginning of our time together. Uh, the series has been Back to Basics, and it's come about because, in a sense, because of what's happened to us uh, since Stevens as a church. Things have changed. And as we've left ACANZP, left the, the, the uh, kind of existing Anglican structure in this country, and as we begin something new, there's a great opportunity for us to pause and to stop and to think about what it is we want to establish, what it is we want to be part of, what's at the heart of who we are as Christians and how we should live and operate in the world. And it's good to be able to do that because when it comes to the Christian life and when it comes to church life, it's very easy to not really think about what you do. You just do what you've always done. We, we get into certain patterns of behaviour, we get into certain things and ways that we like, and we don't really think about it from first principles. What must we be doing? What are the essentials that the other things should flow out of? What are the things that we can be very flexible on? And so this period is helpful for us as we begin afresh. What will define us? What will be the non-negotiables that we hold on to from which our practices will flow upon, and it, it flow out of? In the interview that uh, James just did with me, we were talking about prayer. It was one of the seven. In other words, we're saying that's one of the defining seven things that, that are non-negotiable for us, prayer. But James has brought a suggestion of a new way we do that. Really, that's how it works. We've got to be doing prayer. Let's work out the most effective way to do that with the people that we have at the time that we're in and those sorts of things. So we put together a list of seven underlying unchanging principles that the new expression of Anglicanism, the new diocese, will be based upon. And those seven principles have been at the heart of these talks. We firstly looked at, we broke the talks into four, the relationships that every Christian has, a relationship with God, 
a relationship with other Christians, a relationship with other churches, and then a relationship with the world. And within those four, we'll be finishing with the fourth next week on Sunday, in those four, we've been looking at different ones of the seven priorities that we've done. So firstly, yesterday we looked at relationship with God and Christ, and the two principles that we examined were an authoritative Bible and Christ and the cross. We saw that God has revealed himself to us in his son, primarily in Jesus, but that son is revealed to us in his word, that the Bible is the word of God and our ultimate authority in all matters of faith and conduct. And, and the, the ultimate purpose of the word is to bring us to Jesus so that we might have a relationship with him. We become part of God's family through Jesus on the cross. And we, then we live for him, love him, those sorts of things. So a relationship with God and Christ. Secondly, we looked at relationship with other Christians. And here we saw what I, I said a few moments ago, that when we're saved and enter into a relationship with God, we also necessarily enter into a relationship with other Christians. We, we have the privilege of being part of God's family, of having brothers and sisters in Christ. And that is essential because we need each other. It's the way God's created us. Church is not an optional extra, nor is it a spectator sport, nor is it a product that we consume and we pick the one that we like best. It's, it's, it's who we are. It's where we love our brothers and sisters, where we're loved, where we grow and mature and serve, and where we're able to help others grow and mature and serve. And so we looked primarily at the local church. That's where that happens in the first place. And so the third of the seven principles that we looked at under this talk was deliberate discipleship. And in particular, that word deliberate, because it's very easy in the Christian life to not be intentional, to just stumble along and do things, but not to actually work out how we're going to do it, to have intentional direction, deliberate focus. We know we need to be disciples as Christ. How do we put that in deliberately into our fellowships? Well, this morning we're in talk number three, which is relationship with other churches. So how do we, in the same way that there's a danger in the Christian walk of being selfish and you just think about yourself, not your brothers and sisters in Christ, especially those in the uh, local church you're at, there's also a danger that just us as a local church become selfish and inward looking and not look at other churches and how we can work together and bless and those sorts of things. That's what we're doing here this morning. And so we've got two more of the seven underlying principles that uh, will make up our two headings. We're going to spend all the time in the first one. <laughs> Not because the second one's unimportant, but because we know the second one better. Authentically Anglican, robust relationships. Authentically Anglican, robust relationships. So firstly, authentically Anglican. As I've said, we've seen that as believers, we're gathered into God's church the universal church, which is all believers on earth and in heaven down through the ages. That's the universal church, but also into local churches, which is an expression of that universal church. But we also express our union as we partner with other local churches, as we sacrificially gift, as we seek to encourage and challenge and bless. And often through the years, this has been done through what we call denominations, and denominations really are just groupings of local churches that are ministering together within a structure. Uh, denominations, I don't think, are, are biblical. I, can't, I don't think the words in the Bible. Uh, but you can see the principle through the scriptures. You can see it in the reading that Sherilyn just brought to us from 2 Corinthians. 
In it, we hear Paul talking about the way the Macedonian churches didn't just care about themselves, but they sacrificially gave for the good of other churches. That's what they were interested in. How can we help and support our brothers and sisters out there? It's essential for us to partner with other Christians in sacrificial generosity. And it's good because it opens up, as we see them and what they're doing, it opens us up to different ideas and encouragements. Uh, we're able to, it opens us up to examination from others and they're able to give us a, a helpful word of encouragement or why do you do that? Or it provides opportunities for service and growth. Now, we've done that primarily at St. Stephen's through the Anglican denomination. But at the end of last year, we left it. And as we left it, instead of doing something independent or instead of creating a new structure or fellowship or affiliation, we've decided to create a new Anglican structure, a new denomination that is Anglican, that's authentically Anglican. It's worth asking the question, why? Is that wise? Is it the best option? Why should we go back to something that is clearly, in some sense at least, failed? We've chosen to be authentically Anglican. Is that good? We should be thinking about these things. So I want to give you some of the reasons uh, why I think it is good. I also want to recognise some of the dangers, and I'll get to that as well, but let's be convinced first that there is some reason to it and some good points. And this is really important to do because... It's very easy to be part of a denomination by accident. Put your hand up this morning if you're an Anglican by conviction. Yeah, you're in the minority. Most of us are Anglicans by accident. It's where we were first invited to church. It's where my family kind of grew up. Uh, it's, uh, it's those sorts of... So you end up there. But it means very little because it hasn't been done uh, out of conviction. It's been done out of circumstance. And if that, there's nothing wrong with that. But if that's the case, you're not very invested in the larger denomination. Your energy and your service go into the local church rather than the, the, the larger denomination. And this has caused some of the problems that I'll go into uh, a little bit later on. But if we are at a point now where we're saying intentionally, this is the structure we want to create, this is the group of churches we want to live in and minister alongside, this is the de denomination that we're committed to and part of and passionate about, then it will make a big difference in the way we live, serve, operate. Now, please don't mishear me on any of this. We are Christians first and foremost. We have to be. We're disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ, above and beyond any other affiliations or parties or denominations or groupings. But there's real merit, especially at this point in our history, of saying why we're authentically Anglican. And to start to answer it, I actually need to go back to the beginning because uh, some people would say, why the heck would you stay with the Anglican Church? Because it's always been a bad denomination. Uh, I say this because it's true. That's a, a, lot of, a lot of the people I know that are not Anglican. Why would, you, why would you remain Anglican? Because, the thinking goes, it was started as a church of compromise and it's always been a church of compromise. Now, if you don't know what I, I mean, some of you are nodding, so you know what I mean by that, but some of you will not. This is because, for many people, their understanding of the origin of the Anglican church amounts to Henry VIII, the well-known story of Henry VIII who wanted to get a divorce. 
And so the thinking goes, and there's truth to this, that Henry VIII couldn't get a divorce because England was a Roman Catholic church, uh, country, and within the Roman Catholic Church you couldn't get a divorce, and you came under the authority of the Pope spiritually. So Henry VIII wants two things, really. He wants a divorce, which he can't get if they're part of the Roman Catholic Church, and he wants the Pope to have less power and influence in his monarchy. He wants more power and influence. So he gets rid of the Roman Catholic Church and starts something else up. But most people would agree, most historians, that Henry VIII was a convinced Roman Catholic. It's very hard, isn't it, historically, to work out exactly where people's true faith and genuine faith was. But uh, there's every reason, I think, to think that uh, Henry VIII was a convinced and convicted Roman Catholic. And so, although he wanted to break with Rome so that he could get the divorce and get more power, he didn't break with Rome because he suddenly wanted a Protestant church. He didn't break with Rome because, this is the thinking, because he suddenly wanted the Protestant churches that were cropping up in Europe during the Reformation to happen in the UK. And so the thinking goes that he deliberately broke from the Roman Catholic Church but kept things almost the same because that's where his convictions were. He didn't want the Reformation and the Protestant churches kind of getting in the way of his church with their faith alone, Christ alone, Bible alone, grace alone, you know, all that kind of stuff getting in the way. And so people talk about the Anglican church, the church that was formed under Henry VIII, being a church of compromise, straight away. It wasn't to be one of the the, uh, Protestant reformed churches over in Europe. It was to be not Roman Catholic, so we can do it, but basically Roman Catholic. And people talk about the via media or via media, that the Anglican church was deliberately halfway, halfway between England and um, Rome, halfway between Geneva and Rome, any of those sorts of ways of thinking. Now, there's some truth to that. There's some truth to that. There's quite a bit of truth to that, but there's a lot missed out because what it fails to take into account is Thomas Cranmer. And Thomas Cranmer is the guy that Henry VIII made Archbishop of Canterbury, the man that Henry VIII charged to start this new church. And Cranmer, I believe, you could argue with me afterwards if you want, but I believe this, Cranmer, I think, is more influential within Anglicanism than any other human being not named Jesus. Anyone disagree with that? Great. The Apostle Paul? Darn it. <laughs> Darn it. Get out, Jaden. <clears throat> and Cranmer was the second most influential person. <clears throat> uh, and he was Protestant and reform, evangelical, reformed by theology. That's what he was. And he made sure, both during Henry's life and then even more after Henry's death, when you've got Edward VI, he made sure that the Anglican Church, no matter what Henry wanted, was Protestant, Evangelical, and Reformed in its essence, in its origin. In other words, when I say those words, what I mean is it was a Christian church. It was a Bible-believing church. It was a Jesus-centered church. It was a grace-alone, faith-alone church. It was a God-is-sovereign church. Now, I'm not trying to pretend that the Anglican Church hasn't had a troubled Like all human structures, it's failed and fraught and all those kind of things. But don't believe this nonsense that it was compromised right from the origin. It's not true. So having, I hope, dispelled a little bit of that, let me speak of some of the aspects of Anglicanism I think are a strength and which has gone into the thinking of why we're going to remain uh, Anglican in in some sense. So I'm going to give you some of the strengths that I see that uh, that are a blessing for us as we try to operate with other churches. One is, if you're making notes, one, 
permitted breadth theologically. And that sounds complicated, but just think about it for a moment. Permitted breadth theologically. There's always two extremes to be avoided in Christianity when it comes to doctrine and belief. One is to be too broad and to say almost that anything goes and there's no restrictions and that's nonsense. God has restrictions. The scriptures have restrictions. Therefore, we can't be too broad. But another is to be too narrow and to be too narrow and insist that everyone must be exactly the same as us on every single thing. The Anglican Church, I believe, has kept away from those those extremes until recent days where I think it's been going down the too broad, anything goes kind of way. But it's, it's, it's kept a good and what I would call healthy breadth and depth to its theology. You can see that in the 39 articles. The 39 articles, as I've spoken about before, are 39 statements of Christian truth and doctrine. They spell out the things that Anglicans believed were so important we, we need to write them down and all agree to them. Now, compare that to what some other churches use. Compare that, say, to the Westminster Confession that a lot of Presbyterian churches use for for a similar function. The Westminster Confession has 33 chapters, Not, not, not statements, chapters, and each of those chapters has various subpoints. And uh, In other words, it goes into far more detail. They require far more agreement and consent by everyone there. Now, I want to say, I, I, I'm pretty sure I personally could sign up to the Westminster Confession. I, I love what it says. But I actually like the fact that the 39 Articles gives more scope for difference on secondary issues. Difference of thought and practice on secondary matters, which allows different flavours of Anglican churches. You get diversity within the Anglican denomination in a way that you don't always get it in a number of the other groupings and denominations, even the ones who feel like they're less restricted than Anglicans because they don't have a liturgy, but they tend to be the same flavour and churchmanship. It has a breadth that I think speaks well of the unity and diversity we have in Christ. It allows for different flavours of ministry. You can be charismatic or evangelical or a mixture of both. You can be more sacramental or slightly less sacramental or you can have different styles of music. There's a healthy breadth there. Now, that's a challenge because we're not good at differences. But I I think it's a a really good point and a real strength that we've had. So that's one. Another one is the way the Anglican Church structures its leadership. Churches fight over this a lot. Churches down through the years have struggled in how to operate leadership within the church and we know why, because leadership cannot, power can often be abused. And you don't have to look far to see power having been abused, even within the church. We see it in the world, but now, sadly, we've seen, we see it in the church around us as well. And we know that there should be leadership within the church under the headship of Jesus, because the Bible tells us that. But the scriptures nowhere spell out exactly how that should function, how it should operate. We're told it's good to have elders, but do elders serve for a two-year term or permanently? Should they be elected democratically or should they be appointed? Uh, we know that there's an overseer role, but is it what should they wear? And all, all these things are, are different. And what, what is their overseer role? Is it over everything or just a few things? And so we've got lots of different forms of leadership within different churches and denominations. But dangers can spring up from that. And one of the biggest dangers, I think, is what happens is that often the the minister of a local church can either become a puppet or a pope. A puppet or a pope. 
What I mean by that is the minister can become a pope where they are lord and master of the church and everyone has to do what they say. So their word is law and no one can do anything without their permission and approval. They rule absolutely. Actually, the more I see it say this one, the more I like it. I think it's got a lot of strength. And, but they become a pope in an awful, oppressive, non-biblical way. But there's a, the other danger of the spectrum too, that in some churches, ministers come under, they're employed by a, a group of elders to whom they owe everything to, their livelihood, their house, their future, their, and then even with the best will in the world, they end up having to do exactly what that group says. Because if that group says, no, no, we don't want you preaching on that, you can't preach on that. No, no, we don't want you doing that, you can't do that, that. They end up being, and if you, if you disagree with that, you get the chop and you're out. And you become a puppet. The Anglican system is different to that. It's a, a tried and true. They've, they've developed it over the years. It's one of the benefits of a denomination that's been going for a long time. They've got a finely balanced system where the leadership has a recognised uh, authoritative role within the church, but there's limits to that in all sorts of ways. So you've got some aspects of the church which do come under... There's very few. I think the two that I can remember off the top of my head is the senior minister of an Anglican church has the absolute right to choose the time of the service and the songs that are done. And to ring the bell. Yeah, I wasn't going to bring that one up, Steve, but that is true. Now, I want to know who chose 9.45 this morning. And I didn't choose any of those. But that's, that, that's the kind, you get those specific things. But they work alongside two wardens and a vestry, most of whom are elected by the church. And they work under a bishop. So if a church is being treated badly by a minister, there's somewhere where a church can go to, a bishop. And, and they, they're not employees of the church, the ministers are not employees, which is very significant, but they're licensed by a bishop and can't operate without that. So there's a whole range of things that have been put in place to allow faithful leadership to happen, but for it not to go into any of the extremes. And uh, I think it's worked well. Uh, so that's another one, the, the kind of the, the form of leadership. Here's another one which people don't think about often today, I believe. The truths that the Anglican Church has believed and practiced. This is a plus, especially in the way we've done it, and I may surprise you here. Using liturgy, using the prayer book, whether it's the red uh, New Zealand one or whether it's the green one that we use at St Stephen's, or using liturgy in a prayer book is seen as unspiritual and robotic by some. But the liturgy and the prayer book has done an incredible job of keeping the faith alive, regardless of the minister at the front, or the culture that the service is happening in, or the place where it's happening in, or the time that it's happening in. And I'll tell you why, and we should hold on to this and rejoice in this. It's because Cranmer, in the prayer book, enshrined biblical faithful theology. Theology that recognises the Lordship of Christ, and his sacrifice on our behalf, and our responsibilities as the people of God. And because it has to be used in all the churches at least some of the time, it meant that even if the sermon was woolly and liberal, even if the songs were hippie and emotional, or even when the liturgy... <laughs> I may have betrayed a personal bias there. Uh, <laughs> even when the liturgical words um, uh, were kind of said the wrong way... That they were still said. 
the truth was still spoken from the front and the cross was front and center and forgiveness and confession and faith and grace and Jesus were not able to be ignored. That has been massive. That has been massive. It meant that if you served or or were part of a more liberal church, I, I had this in one of the churches where I had to do my training. It was a more liberal church. They'd moved away in lots of ways from the gospel that we hold dear and preach and proclaim and live. It meant that despite the standard of the sermon, you still got good theology in the service. That's massive. Uh, it, it, it allowed faith to remain in the pews even when it had somehow left the pulpit. That re- repetition is uh, a huge strength. I have been with older brothers and sisters in Christ battling with Alzheimer's just before their death and they're able to recite truths that they hold dear because they've said these words so many times and not just said them with their lips but trusted them in their hearts. It's an incredible strength that is so valuable and meaningful. Now, there's a danger with that, totally. Familiarity can bring, breed contempt, the possibility of just going through the motions with liturgy and the prayer book, but please don't ignore the incredible strength and the sharp strategy behind it. It's allowed the Anglican Church, I think, to remain faithful despite bad ministers and it being culturally odd and you know, all those sorts of things. Now... That's another one. Another reason we've decided to remain Anglican, another strength of it is, because we'd already been able to play under these rules. That may sound very pragmatic, and uh, it is, but it's true. When you start a new grouping, a new structure, a new denomination or a diocese, there are a million things you will fight over. (laughs) Lots of theology and practice that we have different ideas on and takes on, different priorities, and that kind of thing is hard work to come to agreement on it. Remaining Anglican does away with a lot of that because we're going to be very similar. We haven't changed, like we said in our meetings. We haven't changed what we believe or what we're going to do, and so we've already said we can can live under that. We may have some differences within it, but we've said we can still live with it. So we don't have to reinvent the wheel. So I hope that there are tons more I could do, but these are some of the reasons we're putting together an authentically Anglican structure. Not because we think it's the only way, not because we think it's the master denomination or anything like that, but for some of those strengths that are there as we look out to other churches. I believe that these are some of the reasons this denomination stood for 500 years, in very different places, at very different times, in very different cultures, under very different leaders. It's worth reflecting on that. Many of the uh, big churches today, the kind of independent uh, churches, will not survive into the second, third generations. Church studies tell us that. And they won't because they're built around often a certain leader or a certain group ethos which changes in the next generation or the generation after that. The Anglican Church has been built despite those things, on the the unchanging. Now, I I hope I've been able to say a a number of the strengths. We've also got to recognise some of the weaknesses of it because that's wise. There are mistakes that had crept into Anglicanism and into ACANZP in particular that we've got to learn from when we're building the new one. Because as I said yesterday, it's only a fool who doesn't learn from the mistakes of history. So we've got to think about what was going on and, and identify the problem areas and look at changing them if we need to. And here's a big one for us at St. Stephen's. I believe that one of the the big difficulties of the previous Anglican church and the way we lived in it and operated it was 
evangelicals, us, Bible-believing, were too focused on the local church and not enough on the denomination. For all the right reasons... Does someone disagree or agree with that? Couldn't tell. Right. Uh, For all the right reasons, because we didn't want to get bogged down in the machine, we want to get on with ministry. We want to get on with showing the love of Jesus to the people around us. We want to get on with preaching the gospel, caring for the the needy, uh, sharing Jesus with other people. Uh, We want to do all that. But then, because of that, evangelicals didn't often serve on denominational boards or committees. They didn't stand for synod. No one ever wants to go to synod. I've fallen into this. How many people have here heard me go, I've got to go to synod and I hate it? Yeah, everyone's laughing because they've heard me do it. I've fallen into it. I'm, I'm preaching to myself as much as anyone else. People haven't wanted to stand for general synod and so, or apply to be bishops or any of those sorts of things. And so what's happened? Those positions have been filled by people that don't necessarily believe the gospel and, and preach Jesus the way that we do. But we allowed it to happen because we didn't serve the wider body. We didn't care enough about the other churches to not just be thinking about what we were doing and to help keep the structure going which will benefit other churches. To ensure that on those committees and boards and as bishops and general synods and those sorts of things, they were led by and peopled by Bible-believing, Jesus-loving, mission-minded brothers and sisters in Christ. We mustn't allow that to happen again. We've got to serve within the diocese. Uh, Sacrifice good, faithful people to serve on bodies that perhaps they didn't want to, but it's good for the other churches to keep the diocese or the denomination faithful. That's one area. Uh, Bishops. And uh, I don't don't want to get into... I'm not talking about particular bishops here. I'm I'm not into character assassination or, or those sorts of things. But bishops have been a huge problem within the Anglican Church here in this country under the, the old regime. We've elected either unbelievers, sometimes, sadly, or believers who thought that their main role was just to keep the machine going or to play politics or to keep the peace being an administrator instead of people who are passionately committed to the Lord Jesus Christ and who want to equip churches to do ministry in their local areas and to see the next generation of leaders being inspired to serve Jesus and to see churches being planted all around the country and growing. One of the biggest problems um, uh, I think that bishops have done, it they haven't disciplined false teaching. I hate to say that because you know, we don't see discipline today as a positive thing. Discipline is a positive thing, I want to say, but um, we, we think that their job was to discipline false teaching. And we've allowed false teaching. To go. How, how often at Easter do you see Anglican ministers in the media saying Jesus didn't rise from the dead? If that happens, it should be jumped on. Not because we want to jump on people, but because that's against what we believe. And um, you've got those sorts of things. I also, we, we, we sometimes pluck bishops out of church ministry, or today, sometimes they haven't even been ministers, they've been educators or business operators, so they don't know church ministry and things, and they have little accountability. We, we spoke about this yesterday, the importance of accountability. In a church, the minister is fairly accountable. And what I mean by that is they see the staff every day. If, if the minister's slacking off, the staff would start complaining and you'd, you'd hear about it and know about it. They, they see the church every week, at least on a Sunday, but often during small groups and those sorts of things. And if there's things going wrong, it will be seen over time because you're accountable. A bishop is removed and no one really knows what they do. And they're accountable to a synod once a year. Or uh, uh, Accountability is helpful. 
we've said as the group putting together this new one that we've got to have a bishop because that's part of the role of Anglicanism, but we're going to change it so that the bishop will remain at least part-time within a church fellowship so that they will continue to be ministry-focused, so that there will continue to be an accountability uh, within the role and those sorts of things. Uh, We've got to make sure that discipline comes in, as I said before, as well. Now, these things we need to learn from previous mistakes. And if you've got others, I'd love to hear them because we're, we're trying to work all this out. But can you see what it's saying in the end is we're going to be authentically Anglican. We want the strengths of that and to pull away from the weaknesses of it. We also need, and this is where I'm going to finish, we need robust relationships. If ACANZP has taught us anything, it's taught us that a constitution by itself can't hold faithful people together because the constitution of ACANZP was brilliant. When you look at the fundamental provisions, you'd go, well, that's never going to break. It's never going to be corrupted. It's going to stand the test of time. We've just broken it. And it's shown that actually what we need, relationships are more important than laws at that level. A constitution, a set of laws can't do it. If it could, we wouldn't need Jesus, right? Because God gave us some pretty good laws and we haven't been able to keep them, never mind a, a kind of human structure. So we need to work hard at our relationships with other churches, with a bishop. And this is broken down within ACA and ZP over the... How many churches saw their bishop very often? We, there was a disconnect between clergy and bishops and between lay people and clergy, and, and it's broken the relationships down. And at the end of everything, it's relationships that allow Christian ministry to go on. I sometimes hear that a minister or a bishop is a bit like a CEO of a company. No. CEO runs a company where everyone is employed by that CEO. And uh, if you don't do what you're told, then you're sacked. In a church, it's done relationally. There are leadership positions, but if someone doesn't like what the minister says or the bishop, they walk. Relationships are the heart of it. We've got to have good relationships. I love it that James has got us, got the people doing the intercessors, and Lynn did it this morning, praying for some of the, the, the smaller churches that are doing what we're doing at the moment so that we've got them in mind. We may not know them personally, but we know what they're going through and we're alongside them. And if they need money, we'll give them money. If they need something else, we'll give them that. And we're going to be one of the stronger, uh, better well-off churches. If we can serve and help and bless some of those other churches, we need to be doing that. It'll happen through relationships. Uh, I'm going to wrap up. Uh, I think I'll finish just by saying, some of that may sound unspiritual, but it's not. It's what that reading was just about because it was the Macedonian churches looking at how they could bless the other churches. They were fine but they were looking out for the others. I hope everyone here knows that's what we did in our decision-making. St. Stephen's, and I've said this at a number of churches around the country over the last six months, St. Stephen's would probably have been okay no matter what we did. We were very fortunate. We were fortunate because we'd lost our buildings. We were fortunate because we've been a fairly united church, even on these difficult and divisive uh, issues. If we'd stayed in ACA and ZP we would have been fine. If we'd stayed in and protested and said, we're not going to pay our quota or something like that, we're a big enough church that they probably wouldn't have done anything about it. If we'd pulled out and done something just by ourselves, we would have survived. But we said we didn't want to do that. We wanted to do something. Remember, not just us, not just now. We wanted to do something that would be a blessing and a help and a support for others. What we're doing now is deeply spiritual. 
I'm glad we're doing it. It's authentically Anglican, but it's also robust relationships. I'm going to pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for what you've done for us. Help us live that out towards others. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, thanks.